Welcome to Police the Beat with me, Dr. Vicky Conway. In this new side series to Policed in Ireland, we'll be looking at the news and issues relating to policing, exploring them in greater detail, bringing you expert perspectives, as well as reflecting ultimately on what this means for those who are policed. Today, I'm really delighted to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Yvonne Daly, Associate Professor of Law at Dublin City University, to talk about the Kerry Babies case. Yvonne's an expert in all things evidence and guarded interviews, so we're delighted she's made time to talk to us today. Thanks, Yvonne. Great, delighted to be here. Um, will we maybe start, do you want to tell us, outline the facts of the case? Yeah, the Kerry Babies case started back in 1984, um, when a baby's body was found on a beach in Carsaibine in Kerry on White Strand in Carsaibine um, in April 1984 and he had been stabbed 28 times and the police obviously at that stage the Gardaí were trying to discover what had happened to this baby um, who had this baby been born to who had stabbed him and, and left him on the beach uh, or left him to be maybe washed up on the beach um, and there. Uh, investigation led them to Joanne Hayes um, who was from the town of Abidorney in Tralee and she had been pregnant uh, at the time um, and had in fact given birth at around that time and they, they came she came to their attention I suppose um, and um, she and her family were brought into the Garda station on a voluntary basis uh, for questioning um, in relation to the the finding of the body of the baby on the beach um, and as it turned out I mean the facts are that uh, Joanne Hayes had given birth to a baby two days after uh, that or two days before I should say um, the baby had been born or been found on the beach and um, that baby had been buried on the family farm that baby hadn't achieved uh, a, an existence separate or hadn't achieved life as such um, and was buried on the family farm. But it, with the, the circumstances in which the family were questioned, uh, they ultimately ended up making false confessions to the killing of the baby who was found on the beach. And that was what ultimately then led to a tribunal of inquiry in relation to how they had come to make those statements. Okay, so if we go back um, and just say, so she was brought in for questioning because she'd actually turned up at a hospital and clearly had given birth and the guards had gone to the hospitals and said, if you see anyone in this condition, let us know. Um, what kind of safeguards were in place in 1984 for people who were being in interviewed by the guards? If I can start from nowadays, I suppose, to make a comparison, if you're arrested nowadays in relation to an offence like this, you would be arrested under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act 1984, um, which requires a certain amount of uh, suspicion should be in place uh, in relation to you, first of all, and then you're brought into the station, you can only be held for a certain prescribed period of time. There are various conditions which attach to your detention and questioning in terms of the way you must be cautioned before you're questioned, the custody record which must be kept, the breaks which must be given, um, access to legal advice uh, and so on. And none of that essentially was, was in place in relation to an offence of this nature um, in, in the in the mid-1980s. Um, so it seems that she was brought in on a voluntary basis. It was, wasn't made fully clear to her whether she was free to leave or not. Uh, and uh, it seems that the family were under the impression that they weren't free to leave until they had sort of satisfied the Gardaí in their inquiries, even though, um, technically speaking, they probably should have been free to leave. They were not under arrest. They had attended 
uh, voluntarily. But the system was entirely different in the sense that there wasn't really a clear system to detain people for questioning uh, at that time. Usually if you were arrested, which they weren't arrested uh, initially, but if you were arrested at the time, it was to be brought to the Garda station or to be brought before the court to be charged. There wasn't a separate period of uh, time for questioning in relation to an offence such as this. Because this case actually like was one of the prompts, wasn't it, for the introduction of that Criminal Justice Act 1984, um, which brought in those safeguards? Yeah, the, I mean, the, the act, I guess, was under consideration. There was there was a sense there was a need to do this anyway. The guards did have powers to arrest people under the Offences Against the State Act 1939. And there had been a sense that people were being arrested for offences only tentatively connected with offences under that act. You know, that they were being arrested for what were termed colourable devices and being held for questioning under the 1939 Act uh, in situations where they probably shouldn't have been. So there was a sense that there was an absence of a system and that that needed to be rectified. But even when the 1984 Act uh, was enacted, the custody regulations that go along with it didn't come in until 1987. So uh, and so the arrest and detention didn't actually happen until the in, in the way that we would now know it, didn't actually happen until those regulations were in place from 1987 onwards. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, it's kind of strange to think of it now, how how loose these sort of arrangements were. And there was this sort this approach of inviting people in to help the guards with their inquiries. Um, so you would be invited in, this, you know, if, if there was uh, some suspicion that you hadn't involved in an offence, you might be invited to come to the guard station, you know, but how much of a an open invitation that really was uh, is, is unclear. Yeah, not... Um... Not an invitation you'd be turning down too quickly uh, for fear of what might happen. And there's, I suppose there's a couple of parts to this. We know um, that Joanne and her family have made allegations about how they were treated in custody. Um, Can you remind us of any of those? Yeah, there's a series of allegations which were made. And that was what prompted the, the tribunal being put together Though, as I guess we'll discuss, that what didn't seem to be the full focus of what the tribunal was actually doing. Um, but the allegations related to threats which were made to the family in the course of these uh, interviews, of course, their interactions with the guardie, uh, threats, for example, that, that the child who Joanne already had uh, would be placed for adoption, that the family farm would be sold, that her mother would be prosecuted for murder, and that the child who was dead would haunt her. Um, there were claims of physical abuse as well. The family were told that they should pray. Um, and there was uh, allegations as well that, that a guard had at one point sat Joanne Hayes on his lap. Um, uh, and uh, he you know, said later that that was in some effort to comfort her. This seems a highly unusual thing to be, to be happening in a guard station. You know. so and yeah, I think there were, there were serious allegations made. Yeah. Yeah. And like part of this is that you know, Joanne had only just lost a baby. Um, she was exactly. a grieving mother, you know, and, you know, we've done work around this case and, you know, we found the Garda Code from the 1960s and it shows quite clearly their own code said that in cases where you're, you know, you might have infanticide or concealed pregnancies that in order to go about those investigations properly, that women needed to be treated sensitively um, and carefully in order to get the best evidence. And they just clearly breached their own code, whatever about anything else. Um, 
in terms of that, that, you know, a grieving mother was treated that way is quite appalling. Yeah, and I think it's really important to acknowledge Joanne Hayes in those, in that phrase of a grieving mother, you know, that that's what she was. Uh, that's what she was dealing with at the time. Her own baby had not lived and she was dealing with that. And as you say, in relation to infanticide, the Garda Code from, from the 1960s that you're mentioning there, it's quite, you know, that was quite forward looking, I think, in terms of its outlook and in terms of acknowledging the, the sort of, um, I think it spoke about delicate handling that would be needed in relation to a case of infanticide or concealment of birth or, or you know, offences of that nature. Um, and yeah, really disappointing that that was not in any way the experience that Joanne and her family had at that time, that she was treated as a suspect uh, from the very beginning. And even as things became clear, as it became clear that she was not the mother of the child on the beach because her blood type was entirely different from that child. And it was clear that she had, um, that her own baby was buried on the family farm when that body was found and so on. You know, the, the allegations still stood at that time. And this additional theory, which was come up with of super fecundation, that she had perhaps been impregnated by two different men within a short period of time, which left her pregnant with twins from two different fathers. You know, that, that theory again was, was uh, debunked relatively early and yet seemed to follow the case around and to follow her reputation around, I think, to some extent for, for too long, given the, the reality of it. Yeah, because the, the thing with the blood types, of course, was that she had never, she could never have carried baby John um, their blood types were incompatible yeah. so even the theory of super fecundation should have been dropped pretty much instantly but yeah this is what we see this um, pushing to get these confessions and then absolute tunnel vision with of course the really awful flip that not not only what happened to the Hayes family but we still don't know who baby's John's mother is um, we don't know what state she was in. Um, we don't know who's responsible for his death. Um, and, you know, which is wrong in itself. And that's kind of the flip side of when the guards go too far after one theory and ignore other possibilities. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really sad part of this story that we, we still don't know baby John. That's the baby who was found on the beach. We still don't know his story. And who he was and, and what happened to him in the end. Um, and, you know, from, from, from terrible tragedies and incidents that happen, we can learn things that can help us to avoid situations in the future. So it would be good, in a sense, to have some clarity on what happened, that that, that was done to that particular child. And, you know, you can understand that the guards in a situation like that wanted to get to the bottom of it. What happened to this child? We must do justice for this child. The public don't want to have children being stabbed and ending up on beaches and so on. You know, there's a there's a pressure there, almost a moral pressure to get to the bottom of what's happened. So you can understand why the guards yeah, and feel the need to act quickly and determine who is responsible for this. Um, but there is that real risk then of tunnel vision. And you can see again why they, you know, looked for women in the area who had been pregnant and now didn't have babies to show for it as such. Um, and Joanne Hayes fell into that category. But but as we're just saying there, the evidence very quickly uh, tended to show that it was nothing to do with her. So how did she and her family end up making statements um, where they admitted that it, it was them when it wasn't? 
Um, and there was uh, claims made in those statements that her brother had uh, put the baby in the car and driven 50 miles to Slayhead uh, and thrown the baby off the cliffs at Slayhead. And later evidence showed in terms of the tidal movements that if that had happened, the baby would not have ended up on White Strand where baby John was found. So there is a real, you know, I have a, a great understanding of the policing desire to get to the bottom of a case as quickly as possible to resolve it and so on. But, you know, we have to constantly guard against that tunnel vision that you're talking about, you know, and to keep um, investigative eyes open to the possibility of alternative um, reasons or alternative routes of investigation and so on, particularly when the evidence starts to show it looks like it's not who we first thought it was. And I mean, and there's bits where they weren't as responsive on that, where they could have been. Um, Joanne had, it, it took them a few days to find the baby on the farm. Joanne had offered in that very first interview to go and show them where the baby was. Um, and, you know, that no doubt um, gave time for the tunnel vision to kind of confer, confirm itself. Um, and I think, you know, that the, there is obviously this two broader contexts to this, the first is that, you know, allegations of mistreatment during interviews were not unusual at the time. 1978, serious allegations had been made by the heavy gang. We've covered it on police in terms of the Salon's mail train case. But there were a lot of concerns at the time as to Garda methods and interrogation and interviewing and so on. And then, of course, it's 1984, the year after the Eighth Amendment had been inserted into the Constitution and the policing of women's bodies. Magdalen laundries were in operation still. Um, just the policing of women's bodies and the fact that, you know, Joanne Hayes, how very dare she um, have an affair with a married man and not only get pregnant by him once, but have the audacity to get pregnant by him again. Um, you know, it's it that, that context is very important, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And the wider societal context around the case is really interesting as well. Tom English has written about it in, in his book uh, in particular. He talks about just the nature of the times and it being almost a time of flux in Irish society. He talks about sort of the, you know, the, the, the hold of the Catholic Church coming into real conflict with sort of the rise of individualism at the time and a rising number of single mothers who were keeping their children and rearing their children um, and of course, uh, another part of the context is, it's, so this, the baby was found at the beach in April 1984, and it was in January of the same year that Anne Lovett and her baby had been found, um, dead in, in Granard. And, and, and that had followed an out, sorry, after Anne Lovett had died, there was an outpouring of sort of public acknowledgement of women who had found themselves in positions like this on Gay Burns. A radio show, a lot of women wrote in and spoke about, for the first time, spoke about what their experience had been of having children and concealing children and concealing births and all the rest of it. So, again, I suppose to some extent, again, maybe that added to the pressure on the Gardaí to try to resolve what had happened in this case. Um, and on the other hand, I, I think it's very interesting that there's this move away from the hold of the Catholic Church and a greater acceptance in Irish society, um, you know, not necessarily of people having extramarital affairs, but of people having children outside of wedlock and keeping those children um, and so on. It's just it's a really interesting time in Irish society. I think. It is, but it's also the very same year where Magella Moynan, who has now written about this, was, um, you know, 
had disciplinary charges put against her as a guard for getting married outside of yeah. wedlock. And like this is a thing we find that even if Irish society is changing, the police in any country are usually more conservative than, you know, that little bit more conservative. Um, and so it, it's going to be where you see that that change last. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's unsurprising in, in that respect. But as you say, how the super fecundation theory lasted for so long. So the babies had died in April and later that year, eventually, I think it was November, the DPP dropped the charges. And then in, was it December, the family went on the Late Late Show. And really quickly, like very surprisingly, it was like in January, a tribunal was announced. And this is really unusual because um, usually, as we know, people battle for years to try and get a tribunal into something. And I think an important thing, I don't if you're comfortable talking about this, is like, what's the purpose of a tribunal? Yeah, a tribunal is, um, you know, the Irish, Irish, we're, we're used to tribunals as such. There's been a lot of tribunals in Irish history and, and some of them, uh, you know, ongoing. But uh, a tribunal has a role which is different to a court. It's not as adversarial. It's supposed to be an inquisitorial process, trying to get at the truth and, and trying to get at the factual truth as opposed to the legal truths, maybe. Um, uh, whereas in court, obviously in a criminal case, it's the state taking a case against a particular individual. In a civil case, it's maybe two individuals taking a case against each other. So there are parties in opposition in the courts, whereas the tribunal um, is, you know, almost supposed to be more like an honest broker sort of who's just trying to figure out what's gone on and just trying to get to the bottom of it. Um, Though in this instance, it became much more polarised relatively quickly. And I think uh, the judge himself, Mr. Justice Kevin Lynch, he sort of set things up as being more adversarial than a tribunal is supposed to be. Um, and, and that had a real impact on how the tribunal played out, I think, because he, he, he made some comment at one point, you know, if this was a case of the Lind- or the Hayes family seeking damages against Angarda Siakana for the way they'd been treated, uh, whatever he went on to say, but he was kind of suggesting that we would look at it in this particular way and that really set the tone as if it was the guards versus the Hayes family. Whereas the terms of reference of the tribunal had been around figuring out the truth, had been how essentially the tribunal was supposed to figure out how did this family come to make false confessions to a crime that they clearly didn't commit. Um, and it, it just doesn't seem to have played out in that inquisitorial uh, tribunal approach that that it should have done, I think, and that has consequences. So, like, yeah, how the judge goes about um, having all the evidence examined and heard, like whether he's doing that from an inquisitorial perspective or an adversarial perspective, will have a huge bearing on you know how questions are asked, how people are treated, what gets admitted, and we see this time and again that kind of adversarial nature creeping in. I mean, the questioning of Joanne is obviously the biggest example of that. Um, she was treated very much like she was on trial. You know, we've tracked down the, the transcripts for that and read those. And she was asked over 2000 questions in the space of a couple of days. She was, she was a grieving mother at the outset, but then like was clearly very upset and traumatized and distressed, was physically ill at times, had to be sedated. Um, I mean, in modern terms, and even then, we would have hoped that a judge would say this person is not fit to be questioned. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was extreme. It was extreme. And the other point as well, 
is that I suppose to some extent the way that the tribunal is being conducted in that adversarial way also impacts on how the media sort of report on things then as well. So, you know, in terms of it coming across to the public, uh, the public's sympathies ultimately, I think, were with Joanne for the way that she was treated before the, the tribunal. Um, and it was, as you say, extremely aggressive. At one point, she had to be sedated and the questioning continued um, while she was sedated and apparently slurring uh, her speech you know, I can't see how that would, is acceptable at all, and that the tribunal couldn't have broken until the next day instead of insisting that she would go ahead. And as you say, the types of questions which were being put to her were extremely private, not clearly relevant a lot of the time in terms of questions about her menstruation and her um, private life and uh, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, it was it was highly inappropriate. As I say, it was actually... You know, it, it, the, not only were sort of the ordinary people of Ireland seemed to be horrified by how she was being treated, but it was spoken about as well by the Oireachtas Committee on Women's Rights. Uh, and the kind of phrasing that they used around it, they said that her questioning before the tribunal was insensitive, frightening, quite horrific and amounted to mental torture. So, I mean, it was terrible the way she was treated, but at least people were taking notice of it. This wasn't going on uncommented on, you know, in, in high levels, it was recognised that that was happening. And nonetheless, that, that doesn't stop the fact that the, the tribunal findings that were made against her have, have stood in place for over 30 years. But I think that's a really, I think that's a really important point that, you know, this isn't revisionism in any way, shape or form. People at the time knew this was wrong and it shouldn't have yeah. been happening the way it was happening. I mean, there was such a focus on Joanne as a liar um, there was psychological evidence presented of her credibility. That didn't happen with the guards. Nobody asked about their credibility. Um, and there almost seems to be that, you know, we've seen this in other places that sometimes the evidence of Gardaí might be believed a little bit more quickly um, than the evidence of other witnesses. So, so there was huge problems with how the tribunal itself was conducted and, 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 and those are legal decisions that had consequences, as we say, for how the evidence was presented, for what evidence was presented. I mean, the theory of superfecundation wasn't dismissed until day 72, which could have happened much, much earlier and spared so much trauma um, of trying to, I mean, there was work put into trying to establish who was the second man. And, you know, even going back and looking at her her bed where she'd scrawled a name at one time of this man who wasn't even in the country at the time. Um, so all kinds of, you know crazy little laneways that were gone down because in an effort to justify what the guards had done. So then we get to the findings. And what can you outline for us some of what the tribunal found? Yeah, well, look, I think the most upsetting finding from Joanne Hayes's perspective was that she had killed the baby who was ultimately found on the farm. Um, and I just I I have a quote here actually from Joanne who she wrote a book herself at the time, um, and it's interesting because the evidence before the tribunal doesn't substantiate that finding that she killed the baby uh, who was found on the farm. The evidence came from Dr. John Harbison, the state pathologist, who said that he hadn't been able to establish that the baby had a, achieved an existence of its own. Um, and there was also a forensic scientist, the only female uh, witness before the tribunal, besides Joanne and her family members, 
Dr. Louise McKenna, she also, um, you know, her evidence also suggested that that baby on the farm had not been killed. Um, and yet the uh, tribunal member, Mr. Justice Lynch, he found that Joanne had killed the baby who was found on the farm. And just writing about that, Joanne herself says, uh, to me, this attitude of the judge to two state witnesses is the most hurtful of all because it leads him to the conclusion that I killed my baby and that I beat it with a bath brush. This really shattered me. Everything I suffered during the course of the tribunal, everything else said about me in the report, pales into insignificance beside that. And I, I think it's really important to sort of stop and think, you know, whatever about the fact that we don't know what happened to the baby on the beach, we don't know who killed that baby. This finding that was made by the tribunal without evidence to support it, that Joanne had killed her own baby, you know, was shattering for her and for her family. Um, it's the worst thing you can say to a mother, isn't it? And it wasn't or, the purpose of the tribunal to even look at that. The tribunal was supposed to look at why they made false confessions. Why was a finding like this made in the face of the evidence which was before the tribunal? And again, as you say, look, it's not revisionism to say we've looked at the transcripts. The evidence was not there to substantiate that finding. And yet there was sort of nowhere for Joanne to go following that finding. You know? Yeah, and this is, an imp- this is an important point because it was a tribunal. Um, you know, it was not a criminal conviction. And, you know, evidence from tribunals can't be used in further legal proceedings. Um, so she's in this really weird position where she doesn't have like a criminal conviction that she could appeal, um, or anything like that. Instead, it's just this statement by a senior judicial figure that she killed her own child. Um, yeah. and you know, like he literally went against John Harbison had said that if the baby had been hit with the bath brush, the skull would be shattered and it was not. Um, like the evidence completely contradicted what Justice Lynch found at that point. Um, and I, you know, just for, I can't imagine what it's like when a tribunal is set up to give you answers as to why something awful happened to you and something even more awful then happens through the tribunal. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really powerful because we've just discussed how difficult the questioning was for her, the five days, and she had to be sedated and all of that. And yet in that quote that I just read, she's saying, you know, none of that matters except for this finding that I killed my baby, you know, and, and she had already been strong enough in those times to keep and raise the first child that she had had with Jeremiah Locke. Um, and she, you know, was certainly, I think, planning on keeping this second child as well. So again, to go back to the point that she's a grieving mother who has uh, lost that child. And now she's being told and the whole country is being told that, that she killed it. And then on the other side of things, uh, the tribunal is also finding that anything the guards said, uh, which wasn't fully accurate, uh, was described as gilding the lily. And as if uh, they said that the guards had a tendency to elevate honest beliefs or suspicions into positive truths. However, Joanne and the Hayes family were broadly unreliable in relation to truthfulness. So there was a real... Uh, juxtapositioning I suppose is that the way to put it between how the tribunal saw the evidence of the guards and look if they're going a bit far with things and sort of claiming things are a little bit clearer than they are you know that's just sort of understandable in the circumstances but anything the Hayes family says that might be inconsistent at all is you know they can't be relied on they're just not reliable witnesses no matter what they say Um, and and in fact there's 
it's almost reinforcing because at one point when he's addressing the fact that so Joanne and the family said that the guards never read their statement back to you, which is basic procedure. The guards are supposed to read your statement back to you and then you sign it. And they say that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. happen. She made that allegation and he used that as part of the evidence that she was a liar, saying that that was a totally unnecessary, totally useless and obvious lie because the guards would never not do that. Um, they would never be so stupid as to not read it back. So her claims against the guards were used as evidence of her being a liar. And I mean, what is said about their credibility, particularly, the, and he does say particularly the women. Um, I mean, they are presented as like, you know, he talked about a family embarked on a planned deception. He talks about, I mean, Joanne fell in love with Jeremiah Locke and had these children she she is presented as this seductress who you know how who tried to break up a marriage and all this whereas jeremiah had actually sat in the stand and said i love her um and that this was you know a a mutual relationship um and that that condemning of her through the findings is it's just horrible there is an interesting feminist perspective going on with this and you and I have looked at this in terms of the feminist judgments project um, and uh, you know throughout it as well there's a suggestion that the male members of the Hayes family were sort of being led by the women into telling lies that maybe they otherwise wouldn't tell Um, and there's a real sort of view of the women as being deceitful and dishonest and um uh, cunning, I think the word is used at some stage. Um, yeah, and, and there's also an interesting thing in terms of power imbalance in the criminal process, I think, in that the, the more professional witnesses, guards who are used to talking to courts, um, uh, are believed over the, the lay witnesses uh, who, who maybe are not speaking the sort of legal code uh, of the courts, that, that, that they are not believed um or that they don't come across as credible, even though what they're saying, you know, does have substance to it. And interesting, again, just to go back to the point you were making about how the claim was dealt with that the uh, the guards hadn't read back the statement. You know, there were much bigger claims that had been made about the guards, this, this sitting on the lap uh, claim, which didn't seem to garner any much attention in the tribunal. Or and it was kind of accepted, oh, that was to support... Just as Lynch said, it was an attempt to comfort a distressed woman. In no planet is it appropriate for a guard to pull a woman onto their lap in order to comfort them. And how he could think that it was acceptable to say that um, beggars belief. And, you know, there's other stuff like he talks, you know, two babies had died here. Uh, Towards the end, he says the real victim in this was... The, the wife of one of the guards involved had very sadly miscarried, undoubtedly due to the stress of the tribunal, or maybe not, who actually knows. Um, but he described her as the real victim in all of this, which just, um, you know, it is a very sad that that happened to her. But to describe her as the victim in all of this seems to ignore the other two babies in this case. So what happened this week is hugely significant and I think a lot of people are kind of focusing on the, there are good apologies and there's, you know, compensation. But actually what happened is even more than that, because the family made an application which the state did not object to. And so the order was granted saying that all of the findings of the tribunal 
are incorrect and unfounded. What's your kind of reaction to that? That's huge. That uh, That is huge to make that determination, to have the, the High Court this week stand over that and, and have that declaration made in court. Um, you know, I think it's huge from the, a legal perspective in general terms. But again, going back to the quote that I read you from Joanna, you know, I'm sure it's huge for them as well to have this vindication um, that she did not kill her baby and that the findings of the tribunal were unsubstantiated uh, and that this order will now be attached to all um, copies of the report from the tribunal going forward, uh, that the, the, the findings are not accurate or, and are not to, uh, cannot stand. Um, yeah, I, I think it's momentous, really. I think it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And I'm so happy that it's happened, I have to say. Mm. You know, I think it's important. This obviously happened a long time ago. Society has moved on a lot. There are much better procedures in place in guard stations and in interviews and so on. But that doesn't undo the wrong that was done to Joanne Hayes and her family uh, in the 1980s. And so I'm, I'm, you know, just really pleased for them that they have this vindication. And it's it's very unusual. I mean, I've been trying to look into this. I think some of the findings of the Flood Tribunal may have been um, changed or adjusted, but I, this has never happened before, that the findings of a tribunal have been deemed to be wholesale, incorrect and unfounded. Um, and it's brilliant to see the judiciary willing to do that. Um, and it's brilliant to see the lawyers making those arguments um, and it's, you know, it's a new avenue for others because, you know, I've done work looking at other tribunals and often the victims are actually very unhappy with findings that have been made against them. And this opens a whole new avenue um, for people to make applications. So legally, it, it, it's um, a kind of significant, momentous event. But as you say, for Joanne, the importance of having the High Court say Mr. Justice Lynch made an incorrect decision in saying you killed your baby. Um, yeah. How much improved are um, police um, interviews and the protections around that now? Yeah, I, I think they're very significantly improved in comparison to how things were um, back then. Um, you know, the, the, the legislation which is in place um, is very clear in terms of, you know, the level of suspicion which must exist before somebody can be arrested. Uh, as I say, the time, the length of time for which they can be held. Um, there's various court decisions which have clarified the nature of oppressive questioning, for example, that nobody should be subjected to oppressive questioning. Only statements which have been voluntarily made should be admitted at trial. And there's various rules around that, you know, ensuring that people are not threatened in the Garda station uh, or have statements induced from them and so on. Um, as well as that, of course, we have audiovisual recording of interviews in Garda stations now, um, which reduces the likelihood that anything outside of the rules uh, would happen. Um, and additionally, solicitors can now attend uh, interviews with suspects in uh, Garda stations as well, which I think adds an additional layer of protection. Um, there are, of course, improvements which could be made, as there always are in any uh, area. Um, it would probably be good if we had uh, some more recording of other parts of stations, for example. Allegations are sometimes made uh, that comments have been made to suspects outside of the official interview, which might influence their attitude towards um, uh, making statements. 
Um, and um, yeah, but it, I mean, it's much, much better than it would have been uh, in the 1980s. There ha- have still been cases, you know, relatively recently where, like just going back to one of the sort of threats which was alleged to have been made in this case, that, uh, you know, your mother will be prosecuted for murder, that sort of thing. There have still been cases where uh, people's mothers have been arrested and brought to the station as well in this kind of an effort. I'm thinking about the Paul Ward case, for example. Um, and it's going back a good number of years, I suppose, but it's not unheard of still uh, that, that people would suggest that uh, they were put under some pressure to respond to Garda questions. But I would have to say that uh, it, it's much, much improved and, and those are much... Uh, are, are rare instances now that anything like that would um, would happen or at least would come before the courts. And yeah, and that's in terms of the interviews, and as you say, there are still definitely improvements that could be made. Um, but there's also then the investigative process, because obviously we talked about that tunnel vision and, you know, the guards have been doing a lot of work in this space, but we still had in 2014, the inspectorate, published its report on the investigation of serious crimes, which was really exposed a lot of problems in that space. So the importance of, you know, getting these safeguards right, getting them in place, making sure that they're effective, that they're actually, you know, people can get the solicitor they want in the room, all of that kind of thing. There's there's a lot to be done. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I think training is essential in relation to all of this as well. You know, I'm not sure what what training the guards would have had in the 1980s in terms of interview technique and um, uh, human rights protections and that sort of thing. You know, guards Shikana are much more uh, aware of human rights obligations now than they, I, I think, would have been back then. But uh, and they have a new investigatory or uh, sorry, new interview model, which they're using and which they're training uh, people into various different levels. And so I think, you know, the more trained Gardaí are at these sorts of things, the better evidence that they're going to ultimately get. Um, so I, I think that, uh, that that's important as well. It's one thing for the organisation to have sort of high-level principles and protections in place and for there to be legislative protections in place as well. But it's the guards doing the job on the ground uh, who need to be up to speed, I suppose, on, on all of the... Uh, all of the things. And I think that has improved a lot uh, in recent years. Um, though, again, there's always room for further improvement. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that like other people from around the same time have made allegations against the same guardie that were involved in this case and are still, we spoke to Oscar Brahnock on this podcast, um, you know, and they still want to see justice and accountability. And it is one of the features of this that, you know, the ruling this week is great, but at the end of the day, there was there was no disciplining of any of the guards involved. And in fact, there couldn't have been in that there was no findings against them because that investigation just didn't happen. Um, and, yeah. you know, all of those guards, I know Elaine Byrne has tweeted about this, they all went on to be promoted um, and have um, good careers with Angarda Shikona. Um and that is a worry. It's it's one of the recommendations from the Commission on the Future Policing is that um, just because someone retires or resigns, that shouldn't impede an investigation. It would prevent sanctioning, obviously, but you could still have an investigation and make a finding that somebody did what they shouldn't have done. Um, so there are those kind of reforms which um, could be beneficial as well. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um in again in the feminist judgment that we had done you know we did raise the question of the value of 
going back over things. You know, there's a real value, I think, in what's happened this week. Um, but, you know, is there a value in anything further which would cause any more difficulty to the Hayes family? I suppose it would be my only concern in anything like that, that it would uh, require them to give any further evidence or anything or anything else. Um, but certainly it's important, I think, that people uh, working on the ground uh, have accountability, no, no matter how long it might take. Yeah, and I think the the real thing there is about listening to victims. And, you know, if the Hayes family want this to be the end, then it absolutely should be the end for them. But in other cases where people do want to see accountability, um, they should be listened to as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, it is, I mean, an awful case, but a really. I said shed a few tears of joy yesterday. That's for sure. Um, it's a really great week. It's it's a really important decision, um, and yeah, I guess I, we just. Yeah, I think a lot about the the support as well that that Joanne got at the time, even when she was going through such a terrible time. It it always strikes me thinking about the fact that this was nineteen eighty four, um, the organisation that went into some local and national. Uh, groups to support Joanne at the time and uh, this idea uh, that they got together people started to send single yellow roses to Joanne at the tribunal just to show their support and I always as well find it really interesting that uh, she got 142 mass cards while the tribunal was happening and I I just find it really interesting again the juxtapositioning of uh, these people having masses said uh, for Joanne given the predicament that she was in the sort of Catholic Ireland versus uh, you know, personal um, empathy with her and the experience that she was having. And so I'm sure all the people who supported her at that time are delighted as well to see this official statement that the tribunal uh, got it entirely wrong uh, and is not, uh, its findings can't stand. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining me, Yvonne. Um, and Yvonne's work on this on my own is um, freely available on the internet. Um, you can check out our Twitter feeds. Um, we've both been posting it away in the last few days. And I suppose ultimately we just hope the Hayes family f- find whatever peace they can. Um, and we send them our best wishes as outside observers. So thanks very much, Yvonne. Thank you.